Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. I am thrilled, thrilled beyond thrilled to welcome my guest today, someone who I was recently introduced to through a mutual friend, Becky, who I have talked about before, another musical genius. And since being introduced online with this guest, isn't that how all relationships are formed these days, I think, in the pandemic? We just meet people online. We never even meet them in person. and We have no idea that we haven't done that. Um, I have just become absolutely fascinated by his personal story. He is Theo Tams. And you'll recognize his name, certainly, especially if you're Canadian. It launched onto our screens in 2008 as the winner of Canadian Idol. Now, this was at a time when Theo's own identity or the way in which he was known in his family and in his life changed across all layers and all levels. And we're going to talk about that as well. In fact, just nine months before he competed on Canadian Idol, he also came out to his parents. And this might be interesting for you to know, Theo, we'll talk about this as well, that if you Google your name, that's like the first fact that comes up. So apparently people think that's incredibly compelling. I do, of course, but we will talk about why. Um, but I'm sure that that moment in your life fundamentally changed your life and the course of it in many ways. Having released his debut album thereafter, after that big win in 2009, as well as several EPs in recent years, which I just learned means album. I had to do actual research. (laughs) I don't have musical lingo, but several albums in recent years. uh, Theo actually struggled navigating his post-idol image and harbored a desire to really branch out in his work in a bigger way, which it sounds to me like is more authentic and true to who you really are. We're going to talk all about that new music today as well. Um, But today, Theo is actually rediscovering his identity as an artist and with his upcoming EP... I feel so cool saying that now. The Canadian singer-songwriter is demonstrating a remarkable command of R&B-laced pop music. And all this new music was an exercise in the spirit of saying yes to new things. How powerful is that? Saying yes to new things. Now he is standing in a new kind of spotlight. Tams is a stepfather, a joyful responsibility that has given him a new lease on life and inspired the new music as well. Welcome, Theo Tams, to Unapologetic Stories. Hey, hey, thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. It is such a pleasure having you here. It's so nice to actually be able to connect finally. I've been following your story online, and as I said at the top, I'm so fascinated by you, but I'm so fascinated by your honesty, truly, and like how 
much truth and how much depth we get from you, even just from a social media account, which is really hard to do, frankly, when we're kind of talking to people, we don't even know who they are that are listening. So I'd love to kind of start here with you today, though. So for those of you who don't know um, some of Theo's backstory, you actually grew up in a fairly strict reformed Christian household in Alberta. That's a big mouthful with a lot of meaning probably attached to it. People are forming their own meanings, but a very strict reformed Christian household in Alberta. And church was actually where you found music to begin with, which is so beautiful. But take me back through those years before Canadian Idol, before you'd come out to your parents. What was life like for you in that environment being someone kind of other than who you were really and using music to kind of navigate that space? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who are who are out and uh, and proudly out that will tell you, and I mean we all have different stories, different coming out stories, especially. But um, some people will say, you know, I kind of knew when I was a teenager, or I knew when I was a young adult, and that's very different than me. I always knew. I don't have memories of not knowing. Oh, interesting. That I was that that I was gay. I always knew. Um, so growing up in that environment of being very strict, very conservative, ultra religious. Um, it was very, very hard to, at a very early age, reconcile the fact that I knew that I was gay, but also that gay meant going to hell. Oh. Um, so that was something that was really, really difficult. Um, like I said, especially at an early age, I mean, I was someone who I was dealing with, really intense anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts at probably the age of seven or eight already. And simply because I knew that authentically who I was, was this abomination. Oh. Um, so it, it took a long time, a really, really long time uh, to kind of wrap my head around, wrap my head around that and kind of see um, religion for for kind of what it is, at least for me. And, uh, you know, as someone that was raised in that environment, I still have, I have no resentment towards religious people or, um, or anything like that or any ill will. I just, I know what it meant for me that it was important to kind of step away from that. And I, st I still consider myself a very, a uh, spiritual person and I definitely still have a faith base and a faith system. It's obviously just uh, shifted. Yeah. Well, and shifted in a big way. I'm curious what made you eventually either decide to come out to your parents or even find that, that inner strength it, amidst all of this, as you, I mean, I'm using your word here, but knowing that it was an abomination in their minds. I honestly feel like in some ways I didn't have a choice. It was, it, it really felt like, and this is going to sound very dramatic, but <laughs> I feel like in, uh, in so many ways, it felt like it was this life or death situation. I knew that if I, if I didn't come out and if I didn't start owning uh, the truth of who I was, that uh, I, I don't think that I would have made it it was becoming much too heavy of a weight to carry. Uh, and it was, it was making me physically sick in the year that I 
the year prior to me coming out. Uh, my anxiety was at an all-time high. My depression was really bad. Uh, and it started to physically manifest. My appendix, I had appendicitis. And then about 10 days after I was released from the hospital from appendix surgery, my gallbladder burst. And <laughs> my body was just angry. It was like, dude, you have to start figuring this out and start finding the support system. If it's not within your church and not within your family, then you have to find it elsewhere because this is coming to a head. And uh, if I, it felt like I was going to like almost like spontaneously combust oh. if I, if I didn't start owning, uh, owning that truth. And I feel for, you know, a, a lot of young kids and, and teenagers and even adults who are raised in that environment. It's, uh, I, I feel for them because I know what that's like and it's, it's suffocating. It feels like you can't breathe. So, um, as hard as it was, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones to kind of get to the other side. Oh, that is profound on so many levels, but even just the word suffocate, I could feel that in my physical body. As you said, that it's just trying to be, yourself mm -hmm. and not being able to be yourself and also this fear of not belonging in the in what you once knew or especially your origin story your family I mean that's a, that's a really tough barrier to overcome I'm so grateful that you've shared kind of your journey with that how did your family react at that time what was the response and the feedback um I mean I I told my dad first and uh my, my dad was, he was very calm. There wasn't anger there. Um, and that's one thing that I'm very thankful for. There wasn't anger from, uh, from my family. Um, and there wasn't even necessarily a disappointment. I think their head immediately went to, um, to prayer and to God. It was, we have to, we have to find a way to uh, to pray to God and God will change this and God will, uh, a word that was used a lot was purify. God will purify his heart. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's kind of where their head went and it wasn't so much that they were upset with me. I think they, they took this new information as like, oh shit, like our son, if he doesn't fix this is going to go to hell. Mm. Um, and I think that that's kind of where their head went. And I think in some ways still is there. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really hard to break free from some of those doctrines and those mindsets and things that are really built in. Uh, how absolutely brave of you to navigate this at all. But tell me how important music was to you during this time of really discovering, rediscovering who you were. Right. I mean, music was and and still is and at large part has always been kind of a lifeline or a lifeboat of sorts you know i i i kind of was always on uh on the fringe i mean growing up in southern alberta that's ultra conservative um you know small town the arts weren't a huge thing that were uh encouraged necessarily or visible um, so, you know, when all my friends were out there playing football and hockey, I was always kind of the little weirdo on the sidelines with my journal, writing poems and drawing pictures and, <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. So, 
uh, and I was okay with that. You know, me not me not fitting in was never uh, was not something new, and it it never really was uh, something that um, I had a hard time with. It it kind of just was what it was, and and still to this day, I don't really fit the mold in a lot of ways, and I kind of own that. I'm okay with it, um, but. I think that's why music became so important because it was something that was, that was just mine. I knew that regardless of where my life went and regardless of coming out. And if I ended up losing my family and losing this foundation that my life had been built upon, that's one thing that I would never lose. It was, it was just running through my veins. It, it was part of my DNA. So that was something that I was always very, very thankful for because I knew that regardless of what happened, it wasn't something that could ever be taken away from me. I never had to worry about that. Which I find actually incredibly fascinating. I'm kind of going to use this as a bit of a pivot point here because I do want to jump into the Canadian Idol part of your life and your story, which is just one moment in your whole fascinating life story. But you, as you're describing music, it's like, it's all mine. And then you win Canadian Idol and music becomes like everybody's, like your music and everything about you and who you are and what type of music you write and how that I imagine as somebody who's never competed on a reality television show, but understands a little bit about probably how that works in order to be favorable and please an audience. Um, it feels like almost that that would have been taken away from you in a sense. Talk to me about winning Canadian Idol and I don't know, maybe walk us through the glitz and glam and or the opposite. What is the real Right. Um, I mean, for me and... Uh, you know, obviously I've, I've done a bunch of interviews since the show and, and I speak very highly of the show in certain aspects, you know, for me personally, that show was such a big success and such a big victory. My main motivation for going on the show was to hopefully make it far enough that I'd be able to leave Southern Alberta. That was my number one goal. Oh wow! Everything else. I was like, if I didn't, even winning was not anything in my head at the scope of possibility. I was like, just try to make the top 24, then try to make the top 18, then try to make the top 10, because the further you go, hopefully you'll build connections to at least get out. It honestly was my escape plan. Just wow. get out of Southern Alberta. I mean, I was still, when I was, when I auditioned for the show, I had just months prior come out to my parents, but I hadn't had the conversation with a lot of close friends yet. I didn't have the conversation with my sisters. So, um, and because of my parents' reaction, um, it didn't feel safe really to continue that coming out process. So it was kind of on pause. Um, oh, interesting, okay. Until I was on the show and it was the very first live show um, where, the host, Ben Mulrooney, asked me why I sang the particular song. I sang Apologize by One Republic. And he asked me why I sang it. And like I said, it was live TV. So I'm just trying to answer quickly and fluently and not stumble over my words, not sound like a fool. And uh, I just, it was kind of just stream of consciousness. And I said, oh, you know, like anytime I sing a song, I need to have an emotional attachment to it. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was in this relationship and I just had to tell him it was too late to apologize. And I said, tell him. Oh. And it was dropping that one pronoun. I said him. And that was, that's literally my coming out story. I told my parents and then I told a country 
<laughs> all at once. Wow. Uh, so I remember after I sang, one of the producers came up to me and said, you know, don't even worry about it. We'll, uh, it'll be fine. We'll take care of it. And I said, like, worry about what? Like, I still had no clue what I said. And, and then she reiterated to me, uh, you said, tell him. You said you were in a relationship and you had to tell him. And I just remember being like, my stomach just dropped. And I was like, this, it's weird to have those moments that you can almost look back on in your life and be like, my life will never be the same. It will forever be different from this moment on. And uh, that those were a couple scary weeks. Um, but I'm very thankful for the fact that I was out of Alberta at the time. I was in Toronto doing the show and kind of surrounded by ultra liberal, ultra accepting people. Yeah. So it's kind of the exact environment environment that I needed um, at the moment. Um, but it also definitely kind of added this intense pressure throughout the rest of the series of just try to get through another week because going home now is going to be awful. It's not going to be an option. I don't want to go, right. I don't want to go back to Coldale, Alberta as the gay kid who lost Canadian Idol. It was yeah. just that it was the fear was consuming. Well, good thing you didn't lose. <laughs> right for real <laughs> I mean it's just one one little glimmering right here but yeah, yeah. The, the bigness of that though as you say it's like your family knew but your community <clears throat> didn't know and I would imagine if there was shame kind of built into your in in your family story about this that they hadn't shared that necessarily with the church community or with their neighbors or with their friends so this was right this was exactly big. wow yeah. Wow, that is profound. I didn't know that story, actually, Theo. I've, I've done kind of like a lot of, of research, but I wasn't watching Canadian Idol back in those days. So you are sort of new to me, and this story is very new to me. I'm kind of hoping it's new for other people as well a little bit, because it's still, mm -hmm. even though that was a decade ago, it's almost like it hurts my heart to even say this, that we're still having these conversations today about the impact and the weight and the suffocation of people who don't fit the mainstream definition of, I'm going to use air quotes for everybody out there, normal. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And I think in so many ways, I think we've come far. Society has come far. I mean, when I left Lethbridge, Alberta or Coldale, Alberta, Lethbridge didn't have a pride. There was nothing really going on. And now, you know, Lethbridge has a pride and they have a rainbow crosswalk and they even have a trans flag crosswalk. So it's incredible to see these little changes kind of um, come to fruition in these communities. Um, but I mean, what's also interesting is uh, without a doubt, every single time that I go home to Southern Alberta, um, and this is no exaggeration, Every single time I go home, uh, whether I'm out at a restaurant or out at the mall uh, or, you know, whatever, getting gas, I will get called a faggot or oh. queer or something by someone. And, um, you know, that kind of shit just rub runs off my back. Now, it really, it doesn't bother me near as much. I mean, I've been in this industry for long enough. People are going to have opinions. Um, but what makes me upset is that say it to me that's fine but I know that you're saying it to the kid who's still closeted and yeah. and it's it's those types of things that just 
are the ammunition to keep them in there. Uh, and I'm not saying that the entire community is like that. Obviously not. There's There's been a lot of growth, but unfortunately there still is. Um, and I'm sure that it's everywhere, uh, but there still is just those really just bigoted people. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we have them in our community. We have a, a politician out our way that is still advocating for conversion therapy. So we're, you know... Ugh. Our community is very hopeful, at least the community that I am in conversation with is very hopeful that that person whose name I will not even mention uh, does not get back into office in any way, shape or form, because the harm is still embedded at every layer of in corporate, in government, in just our neighborhoods, certainly in our religion and in our churches. It's really tough. And it's really inspiring, actually, to hear your personal truth navigating this. So we're going to move kind of like past Canadian Idol, of course, which was obviously big success, but came with this decade of, of now everybody knowing and calling you these names. You said it's now kind of water off your back. Mm-hmm. How, how do we even get to that point? Like, what was that journey for you like in, say, the last five to seven years even of really getting to this point where you're releasing this new album with some songs we're going to talk about the titles fixable and therapy some of those songs which we're going to dig into (laughs) but where that came from um but how do you even get to this place where you're at now where you're saying yes to new things um i mean to be honest that's been i wish i could say it's been in the last five seven years that i've kind of learned but um this exercise in in saying yes and and trusting myself more has really kind of been very new to me. It's kind of only been in the last year, year and a half. Um, I think the start of the pandemic really was kind of when this new batch of songs was being created, songs like Therapy and Fixable and Jekyll Hyde Love and Quit You Love. Um, I think, we all kind of took the beginning of the pandemic in our own way. I mean, we heard we heard it all over the news. We heard it from our loved ones, from our friends. These were unprecedented times. Mm. Um, so we all definitely dealt with them uniquely, I'm sure. I think the, the really interesting thing for me was my my partner and a bunch of my friends, it seemed so easy for them to adapt to this new way of life. And I felt very left behind in a way because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I would see on the news, like all of these people wearing masks and even the word pandemic and how many new cases. And it was mentally, I could not, I couldn't deal with it. Mm. Um, And it's also kind of where, um, my drinking really kind of spiraled out of control. I mean, drinking has been, uh, or I should say was, uh, but drinking was a crutch of mine from a very, very early age, probably 1920. Um, you know, 18 is drinking age in Alberta. And I would say, yeah, maybe not that early, but 2021. And I went on idle when I was 22. Um, and I learned very, very quickly, um, as you as you will with alcohol, um, that it's very, very helpful to numb the feelings that you don't want to feel. 
<laughs> so, yep, sure is. Um, and once my brain learned that, um, it became my, it became my best friend. Mm. It became my alcohol became my best friend. It became my confidant. It became my teacher. It became, um, it became everything mm. to me. And, uh, it was kind of at the start of the pandemic when it really started to slide even further than I knew it had. Um, but all of the things that I had as a list that as long as I wasn't doing these things, then, uh, I didn't have a problem as long as I wasn't, as long as I was still going to work, as long as I was still, you know, going to the studio, as long as I wasn't drinking in the morning, all of those things, as long as I could check those things off the list, then I would, then I didn't have a problem. But then when we got locked down and I didn't have, didn't have work and I didn't have the studio mm. and, you know, my, my partner would be at work at six o'clock in the morning and he wouldn't be home till 7 PM. So like he wouldn't really know if I drank in the morning anyway. So all of these things that I kind of held myself to this standard, uh, all of those were kind of now negated. Right. right. Um, like the scaffolding just falls apart with all of the reasons. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I unabashedly just dove headfirst into the bottle for probably the first four or five months um, of the pandemic. And I was definitely, I mean, prior to this, I was definitely drinking every day regardless, but this was hard. I mean, I feel like I was just kind of living in this constant state of, of drunkenness right. um, because I just could not process what was happening. I couldn't handle it. Um, and as dark as those times were, probably some of the darkest, um, I'm really, really thankful for them because it led to uh, just this um, very simple moment. And it was the first week of December. My partner and I were walking our dog and we were walking past um, like a shopper's drug mart that had those big glass storefronts. And uh, I kind of caught my own reflection. And uh, I, I remember talking to uh, a therapist a couple of years ago and and she encouraged me as an exercise to for 30 seconds which 30 seconds is not a lot of time 30 seconds uh just look at yourself in the mirror just oh. stare at yourself for 30 seconds did you say no and, no 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 that's not that's too much <laughs> yeah and in my head i was like it was like my homework right and and in my head i was like sure easy i can do that and i don't even think i got to five yeah. without having to look away. It, I just had this aversion to, to myself. And uh, it was that moment a couple of years later when we were walking past, uh, walking past the shoppers and I caught my reflection. And I remember just making eye contact with myself and not just, you know, when you kind of look at yourself, you check your hair out or for me, I always got to make sure that there's no shit in my beard or flyaways or anything <laughs> yeah, <the laughs> and uh, but I yeah exactly but I made legit eye contact with myself and I was just just disgusted hmm. and I realized that there was not only was there no self-love there but hmm. there was self-loathing 
Mm. I had, I had just become someone that I hated. Mm. And it was, so when people talk about rock bottom moments, uh, you know, for me, I feel like that was kind of my rock bottom. It was some people have awful things happen where they, you know, they lose their marriage or they wrap a car around a pole or something like that. And for me, it was this rock bottom for me was when I just decided to stop digging. Ugh. I was just, I was not going to dig myself into this hole any longer. I knew that even though I didn't fully believe it in that moment, I held to the hope that my life was maybe worth even just a little bit more of wow. what I was, what I was living. Uh, and yeah, that was, uh, I think we, we finished walking the dog. We came home. I cracked a couple beers and I remember the very last one. I didn't even finish it. And in my head, I didn't tell my partner. I didn't tell anyone for the first couple of days. And I just, kind of took my last sip and I remember exactly what kind it was. I remember exactly placing it down on the coffee table being like, Ooh, like this, I think, I think this is it. I think this is my last drink. Ooh. And, uh, and it has been so oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo you. you. Yes. It's one of actually probably one of the things that fascinates me the most about you, the way that you have opened up even about your sobriety online, even just to read your captions. <clears> I'm like, wow, it's so powerful. And now that I am kind of seeing this parallel to even if we go back to pre 21 or 22 year old Theo, it's like this journey for you. Your life is all about looking, literally looking in the mirror and finding you behind whatever story and whatever self-loathing is kind of covering that up, whether or not that's been kind of delivered to you through religious doctrine or it's been delivered to you through alcohol and numbing mm -hmm. it's like there's this theo that's been waiting to break through and then breaks through and then kind of gets covered up and then breaks through again and each time yeah. we get to see a little bit more of you but one thing i really wanted to to kind of grab hold of in what you said here because it felt like i had a i had a reaction to it as you were saying it was that it wasn't the moment for you, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, but you know, rewind back if you're listening and, and, and hear Theo say it, but that it isn't this big, great shift into, and now I'm going to be so decidedly purposeful and be another person. It's just the small knowing that you are worth something better than this moment or something mm -hmm. more than this moment. Like the power in just that small recognition that we can get to tomorrow without cracking a beer, or we can get to next week. That's all we're looking for here is just the hope or the knowing or that kind of inner recognition that you, there is something more within that needs to be out. It's just, I think it's fascinating and inspiring. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely evolved into, into maybe something slightly bigger since that moment, but you're yeah. right. That's exactly how it started was maybe just for maybe just for right now, for this moment, something's bigger yeah. and something, something more valuable is waiting. And, and since then, you know, I've, I've kind of learned to, uh, you know, to put myself first. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it's something that 
And I never realized, I think sometimes as we go through life, we don't realize uh, the things that we, we struggle with until they're either pointed out to us or we kind of have like a little clairvoyant moment but I never realized how hard it is for me to to choose me and the last eight and a half months since that last drink it has been a daily kind of occurrence uh that I have to and and like you said I mean it definitely started off for me as I had no plans when I first stopped being like you know, this is going to be my last drink forever. Mm-hmm. Forever is way too long, way, <laughs> way too, too yep. <laughs> way, way too much pressure. Uh, but, you know, so I said, okay, you know, like let's, my first goal, and it was a lofty one at the time. Let me tell you, it was huge. It was in my head, insurmountable was do a week, wow. do one week. And uh, I hit that week and that first week was hell Mm. and as someone who grew up in a very religious household I do not use the word hell lightly (laughs) Uh, so that's how bad it really was yeah (laughs) it was hell um but also very eye-opening I had no I was very not aware I knew that my drinking had become a problem I didn't know how problematic it was until my entire body was in full-blown detox. Mm. I had, I had the, like when you see like that show intervention and you see people like coming off of hard drugs, like crystal meth and heroin, that is literally, and I don't want to compare the two, but it's, it honestly is almost what my body felt like. I was shaking. I was sweating. My entire body from head to toe was itchy. And it was probably 10 days of that. Wow. And uh, just not sleeping. You don't sleep a wink. I swear to God, you do not sleep at all for a month when you're coming off of, uh, when you're coming off of alcohol. Uh, So yeah, started off as a week and then two weeks. And then I said, okay, get to a month. And then once I got to a month, um, I said, okay, like now six weeks, two months. And then around two months is kind of when you start to get into this, they call it the pink cloud. Uh, and it's just, you feel like a rock star. You feel so good. <laughs> yeah. And mentally, everything is, you're finally getting clarity and you enjoy the clarity and it's amazing. And, you know, like sober is sexy and you just, you're living that kind of sober dream. Um, and for me, that lasted for a good couple months, maybe two, three months. And then when I hit around like the five month mark, six month mark, um, you kind of just crash again and things, at least for me. Um, and I know, um, several other friends who I've talked to have kind of gone through the same experience, but, um, you kind of, you go back to how it felt in the beginning and you're no longer riding that high. Now, now it's becoming that very daily choice every single day, having to, um, to choose yourself and to, you know, for me, it, it's, it's a matter of, you know, choosing myself, but also just choosing my dreams again, which I feel like I haven't done for years right. and choosing my talent, which in some ways I, in, in many ways, I feel like I've been 
wasting. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's been a wild journey oh, <laughs> to say I, the least. Yeah, I can, I can feel that. And it feels I'm, I'm going to jump into actually one of your own quotes here to sort of like make a point, but, uh, your quote, I'd rather be on a roller coaster than a merry-go-round any day. So mm -hmm. this is what that kind of feels like to me is that you are on this roller coaster, whether it's the sobriety roller coaster of figuring out those ups and downs and the crash moments and the highs that come along with it in kind of that post sobriety phase. Um, but it's also kind of the story of your life too, is you have these big highs and then you're having these big lows and then these big highs and then another big low. Why is that roller coaster more fulfilling? I guess the word is to you than that merry-go-round. I mean, I feel like for me, that's what alcohol was for me. Alcohol was the merry-go-round. It mm -hmm. kept life very static. Um, life was very routine. Um, I mean, when, you're, when your biggest uh, goal for the day is to make sure that you get a certain amount of beers or a certain amount of alcohol in your system, then there's no room for anything else. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I feel like life is, was meant to be a roller coaster. We're meant to have these really great highs and we're meant to experience pain, um, and hurt and heartbreak and loss and grief. It's just part of the human experience. And I think when you start allowing space for those messy emotions and those hurtful, um, those hurtful feelings. Um, I feel like when you allow space for them, they start taking up less and less mm. and you, there's more room for, for joy and for contentment and for peace. And if you would have asked me when I was still a drinker, if I knew what peace was, I would say, I don't got a fucking clue. Ah. I have no, I, I have no idea what that word means. Peace, clueless contentment, not a chance. Mm. Um, and I feel like I am slowly getting little sunbeams of peace and, uh, little waves of contentment over the last several months. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. And that doesn't, that's not to say that there's not pain and hurt and loss and all of those things. Um, there, look there is. The sunbeam. Look for the sunbeam, really. Ex exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now you have a little sunbeam in your life now. I've heard. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, a, a beautiful little stepdaughter who yes. has not only, I would imagine, been the joy and light of life in general, as stepdaughters typically are, um, you had shared with me as well that you had a recent conversation with said stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. And um, what you had said was you had this eye-opening moment where you thought it was, <clears throat> excuse me, hypocritical of you to be encouraging her to do all of these things. I'm imagining you kind of giving advice and saying, be yourself, <laughs> go do the mm -hmm. thing. Um, when you were really 
uh, not even comfortable with being yourself and it felt hypocritical for you and shifted something in your thinking. Tell me about maybe just the power and magic of, again, it's like this mirror I'm seeing. It's like you're having this conversation with your stepdaughter. And again, you're like looking in the mirror being like, wait a tick. This isn't quite. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, children, right. The way that they see the world, Mm -hmm. they're, their innocence and their honesty and their kind of no BS approach to, to a lot of things is, is so refreshing. Um, so obviously I feel like I've learned, um, a lot from her and just the way that she kind of, uh, walks through life, um, very authentically. Um, but yeah, it was that conversation and she was dealing with just the the things that kids deal with and, just, you know, other kids at school, maybe not being so friendly. And so we had to talk a little bit about that. And, um, you know, and I just, I would say things to her, like, you know, at the end of the day, you're never going to please everyone. You Mm -hmm. know, that's just part of, it's just part of life. You know, um, the whole, like, you're not, you're not always going to be everyone's cup of tea. Um, and literally as these words are leaving my mouth, I'm, I'm, just being like, dude, like you are such a hypocrite. <laughs> you know, like, how... like I'm so self-conscious and people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, how are you saying this to her when like you are literally making and not just little choices, but you are making huge choices in your life um, for the benefit of other people or to please other people. Right. Um, and specifically in that point of my life, very much in my career, I was still um, very much kind of just making the kind of music that I felt I had to make um, and not making the kind of music that maybe I was afraid to make. Um, there's been a lot of times that I've been in the studio and we've been writing a song and we'll get about halfway through and I'll, I'll say to my producer, to one of the people I'm co-writing with being like, Oh, this is so cool. You know what we should do? We should pitch it. We should pitch it to this artist or we should pitch it to that artist. And, uh, it was Marty, who's the producer that I'm working with now, who he kind of just called me on it. And he was like, why, like, why would you pitch it? Mm. And, and my response was, it's just not what I do. I don't oh, wow. really do this. You know, I, I, I kind of am the guy that I lay back behind the piano and I write these very intense emotional ballads. Like, that's what I do. Anything that has, at least in my head, anything that had a vibe or anything that had kind of like a cool factor, I couldn't do. I wasn't cool enough to do. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, uh, and Marty kind of just said, dude, like if you're writing it, then it's you. This is clearly coming from you. You're the writer. So what do you mean it's not you? And uh, that was a, that was a shift. And that's kind of when I credit that moment in a lot of ways for where I am now, even with the drinking, because it was kind of the first time that I allowed myself to see myself the way that someone else sees me. Right. And I mean, isn't that life? I wish that I could see myself the way that uh, my partner sees me. 
I wish I could see myself the way that my, I wish I could see my talent and my own ability the way that my producer sees it or my co-writers see it. Um, you know, I wish I could see my strength and my resilience the way that my stepdaughter sees it. Wow. And I'm, I'm starting to learn now to, um, like you said in the very beginning of this, of this chat, that the last year especially has just been an exercise in saying yes. Yeah. And no matter how uncomfortable or scared or worried I am about the outcome, that means less to me now. And just saying yes and just going through the process is, is so valuable. It's so valuable. This is incredible. So tell us quickly as well, because I, I, I definitely don't want to miss this and I'm so excited about it. You have this new music, this new album. Tell me the title, tell me the drop date, tell me what's going on with this album, which has these songs fixable in therapy, which I can't wait to listen to. Right. Uh, okay. So I kind of had the thought um, last summer um, already um, that I wanted to start releasing music in trilogies. Um, so done with albums, done with even EPs, like smaller albums. I knew that I wanted to start releasing it in trilogies. There's something just very um, comforting to me about the fact that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Just very simple, three song packages. And uh, so Trilogy One came out uh, in November of last year. The first single was Therapy, um, <clears throat> which I felt if there's any song to kind of launch this new sound and this new authentic version of myself, um, or I shouldn't say new authentic, I should say the real authentic version yeah. of myself. Um, it was Therapy. You know, Therapy is just, it's this, love song that is riddled with self-doubt um just kind of that moment where you you know that you're madly in love with someone but you just don't know if you're good enough you don't know if you can love them the way that they need you to love them um and it was a really really fun song to create just because I said to Marty, I was like, it's really, it's going to be interesting to kind of write this super sexy, slow jam kind of R&B bop and then have the hook come in with just this repetition of I need therapy. Which, I mean, I've always been very open about mental health and my own struggles and trying to smash the stigma associated with that. So I felt what better way than to kind of lead with this song that is just owning the fact that therapy is one of the most badass things that you could do for yourself. Yeah. The single <clears throat> you, most important. Yes. I feel like whether you, whether you truly feel like you have things to go through or not, like who doesn't want just a very non-biased sounding board to kind of help you make sense of all of these different yes pieces in your life that we're often clueless of what to do with. So um, that was kind of the launching pad for, um, yeah, this new kind of sonic soundscape. Yeah. And uh, it's been just a wonderful creative journey so far. So that was Trilogy 1. Um, and then Trilogy 2, we launched in April. Uh, we released the last song from Trilogy 2 just at the end of June. That song is called Quit You Love. Uh, Quit You Love was written last summer 
couple months into the pandemic when I was very much, I think, at the height of my my addiction with alcohol. Uh-huh. Um, so it's that song, I think, is the most challenging of the six that we've released thus far. Um, it's really interesting to go back and kind of, now that the single's out, have to promote it and play it and kind of go back to that very drunken state of when the song was conceived. Yes. Um, but there's also something really special about it now, kind of being on the other side or working my way through to the other side. Uh, and then Trilogy 3 is is banked, it's recorded, it's mastered, and first single should launch probably in a month. Yahoo. So uh, for anyone listening out there, that would be in and around the end of September? That's the plan. Yeah. That's the plan. Oh, how exciting. Well, I'm thrilled for that. I love that you've had even just these waves. It's like your music changes as your story changes. And that is how Mm -hmm. life should be. It is how projects should be, is being able to show up in the truth of where we're at, whether at the down kind of cycle of a roller coaster or on the up cycle, we're still sharing all of those points, the pain points, as well as the high points. Now, I don't even want to end this conversation. I am looking at the time thinking like how this is just, you are profound beyond words, Theo. I don't know if you know that or don't know that, but I will validate for you that- (laughs) I just have learned so much from you and just you sharing your personal story, but also so much wisdom kind of laced in here. We always sort of end um, the podcast with what I call secrets are out segment. And it's a little bit of a rapid fire randomness. And I had some Uh questions prepared. And then I literally thought you feel like the person that has been coming out of secrets a lot in your entire life. So this will probably not be as surprising, Mm. but what I kind of want to know, first of all, is the first question kind of rapid fire I have for you is what would you say to 21 year old self now, if you could give them just one piece of advice and wisdom? Don't pick up that bottle. Ah, okay. Yeah. Cause that's yeah. where it started. Yeah. I think I would say, um, you are enough and no matter how much you drink, you're not going to feel enough. So just know it now. Know that you're enough without it. Know that you're enough without it. Yeah. Okay. My second question for you is, would you ever go on a reality television show again or reality competition show? Why or why not? Um, not, uh, I would, I got actually offered to do America's Got Talent. Oh, wow. Um, a few a few months ago, and I turned it down. So I wouldn't do a reality talent show again. But if there's anyone listening that could hook me up with Big Brother or Survivor, ah, I'm, Brother. Down. <laughs> I'm down for that, for sure. Yes. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just going to like add a, a random third question now. What is your favorite kind of guilty pleasure watching on television? Is it Big Brother? Because I love Big Brother too. I would say, yeah, it's... I mean, any type of just really burnout reality TV, I'm all about. I love Big Brother. I love Survivor. But I also, I love Top Chef because I'm such a foodie. So Top Chef is a big one for me. Me too. We could absolutely hang just to watch television because that's exactly what I do as well. I'm like, burnout or brain out numbing television is kind of what I like to call it. This is my numb zone is I go straight to like garbage reality television um, and or like MasterChef or Top Chef. I love that kind of stuff too. Okay. 
if you could collaborate with one artist of your dreams, who would it be? Ooh. Um, that's so tricky. My, I would say Tracy Chapman. Oh, good one. Oh <laughs> yes. God, that would be fantastic. Tracy, <laughs> hopefully I'll hashtag her. Like, yes. Um, Hook me up. Oh, that would be incredible. <laughs> what a great collaboration. Okay. So I'm going to close it out with this. You're going to bring us home here. If you have one piece of advice for our listeners about if they're feeling really, really, really stuck in saying yes to something new, in saying yes to the next thing, whether that's a small thing or a big thing, what would that kind of final piece of advice be in order to get them to say yes to that thing that they are just holding out for? Um. I don't know if it's necessarily, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I would just say at the end of the day, life's, life's moving on. Uh-huh. You're, you're getting older. So you have nothing to lose. There is nothing to lose. It is, it sounds so cliche, but it's that simple. You know, like in a year, you're going to be another year older regardless. So would you, would you rather have a few more things that you've done, even if they didn't turn out? Right. Or would you rather being able to say, I didn't even take the chance. You got nothing to lose. We, we're here for one life and that life could end at any moment. So you got to go for it. You got to go for it. You got to go for it. We are closing it out with that. I'm not even going to add my thoughts because that is just too brilliant, too brilliant. You just got to go for it. Theo, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with me and with our audience. I am forever grateful and I'm going to be a lifetime fan just by virtue of the fact that I just love you now so much. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're awesome. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app, or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.